my end. Um, you want to gavel us to order? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, Ivan Trevino, thank you so much for joining me. This is part two, by the way, for, for people who um, maybe didn't catch the first one. Um, we left last podcast. Uh, we, we sort of messaged a bit afterwards about wanting to pick up where we left off and continue the conversation. Uh, we sort of, you know, in an hour and a half, there's no way we're ever going to get to everything. And so uh, I just want to say before we get into this one, um, I've had... I think when you messaged me, I immediately was like, I because I've been alone all year, I went into anxiety mode. I was like, did I say something to make Ivan mad? Did I, <laughs> I think I complimented him on his music. His music's awesome. Like what? And so we texted a bit and, and um, I'm curious, I'm very excited to talk to you about today, but um, I want to just sort of picking up where we left off. How, how have you been thinking about the last week or was it a week and a half ago that we chatted? Yeah, that's about right, Josh. Okay. I think it was a week and a half. And um Honestly, for me, man, like I felt really nice about our conversation. I felt like we talked about a lot of feelings that we've we've had about, uh, you know, like, for example, um, accountability and how we talk about that and how we uh, address, you know, people that we know uh, making a phone call versus having social media sort of conversations about uh, all of this stuff, you know. But, you know, I also left feeling regretful that we didn't talk more about and focus the conversation more on obviously systemic and structural racism Mm -hmm. and like how obviously like that encompasses so much of our lives. Um, And I just, I was thinking like, you know, maybe a young musician who's just getting into soap percussion or who's playing my music, they stumble upon our conversation, our first one. And maybe they're just sort of getting introduced to racism and how, mm-hmm. what that means to, to their life and to their friends' lives and to, you know, minority communities. And I just like, I didn't want them leaving the conversation thinking like, oh, like racism is complicated or, you know, I'm not sure how I feel like that's not what I would want them to leave with. Mm-hmm. I feel like our feelings about, you know, how these things are talked about um, there, those things, I think there's room for conversation, but like actual racism, the structural and systemic things mm-hmm. that people of color deal with are like so real in, in every part of our lives again. And, you know, like in terms of uh, income inequality, in terms of the food we eat, in terms of, um, you know, the income gap, in terms of like hiring, uh, policing, et cetera, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. that stuff is totally real. And we didn't really address that topic. And like, I heard somebody talking about this the other day, and I think there's some truth to that. Like whenever you're having these conversations, it's good to center the conversation around the people that are most harmed by some of these issues. Um, And I think that's true too, you know? Um, So not to take away from our convo or to feel like we shouldn't have talked about that. Like I totally feel like we should have. And that was actually very um, enlightening for me and nice for me just to open up about that stuff. And I think you probably felt the same way. Um, but like I was struggling with um, how much of our own feelings we talked about versus a lot of these like bigger things that like we didn't really address as much, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I want to, I mean, this is where my, my own, when I say anxiety, it's not, that's not a thing that you need to worry about. Like that's my, you know, my own personal stuff. Um, I think I do, I do want to be very careful in these conversations to walk the line of things I 
think I have experience with and then where I don't have experience with, I go back to the things that make sense to me and then go from there. And in one-on-one conversations, like this market that we're, or the economy that we're having this, or sorry, the ecosystem we're having this conversation in just allows for a lot more, like I can bit, see, I can sit here and go like, I don't know, I don't understand. I don't, but in social media, I think that's why I was exp- expressing my fears about social media. Like that nuance is just way harder to get in the conversation. And so I apologize if anything I was saying about personal experiences I had, um, felt like it was not it for me it's just a way in it's like mm-hmm. I, I i understand some of these topics i'm never going to understand them fully clearly i mean you know but <laughs> but there's i think it's important for folks who don't have any idea what this stuff is to um feel like they have an in somewhere um and i know that's a, that's a complicated thing to say because that allows for everybody to have input into how these conversations can go. And I, I'm immediately saying that's messy, but um, I'm curious for you when you say, I think I have an idea of what systemic issues can be. I've seen tiny, I've seen the way they manifest at like New York university or Princeton and sort of, again, like I, I don't have an immediate immediate identification in terms of my own personality as to like changing the name on a building or, addressing hiring practices like those sorts of things are um still foreign to me in a a way but i'm curious when you say systemic racism what exactly and just spell it out for me like for somebody who has no idea or thinks those words are stupid like i don't think those words are stupid at all i agree with you 100 percent. but i think when it's often used as a blanket to describe why people don't understand something and it's like Man, what what do you mean when you say systemic racism? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, uh, first, like, and, and we talked about this, too, like, um, you know, I'm going to just offer my opinion, yeah. in, which is, you know, um, like, no expert opinion. It's just what I bring to the table. Um, but for me, it's how um, various things are structured to um, ultimately um, benefit or not benefit people of color, you know? So, um, for example, like even our educational systems, you know, it seems like because of taxpayer dollars, um, most often are going to the wealthiest communities to have the biggest and best sort of experiences for their students. Mm -hmm. And inevitably the communities of color and the kids who grow up in those situations inevitably have less because of how those systems are, um, put together and how they're funded. And that an immediately creates inequality, mm-hmm. which in turn, like, um, goes up the ladder, you know, as, as these kids get older, um, they don't have the same experiences, the same educational experiences. Um, and it sort of just creates a perpetual sort of, uh, recurring cycle of, of this thing, the system that inevitably repeats itself over and over again. Um, and, and, you know, like, obviously that's a big issue and not exactly sure how we fix it today. Um, but that's one example, you know, also like mass incarceration Mm -hmm. stuff that happened in terms of, um, you know, the war on drugs, uh, that like inevitably affected people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's so, there's so many, there's so many things to talk about the food that we eat and the food that is available to us. 
What's um, the term? I think I heard this term for the first time a while ago, and it sort of like flew by me, but I didn't. Uh, was it a f- food desert? I think is like um, places in the country where it's like all, like where nothing grows, and it's really hard to get stuff there, you know. And yeah, um, and then what that means for those communities when you know if it's just easier to put up a McDonald's, then over time that community. You know, it's like you you eat what it is that is brought to you oftentimes. And we as human beings don't go out to get our food that much anymore. Like you eat what you can walk and go get. And that means something for wealthy communities versus poor communities. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's totally true, man. Um, you know, even, even hiring, uh, you know, it's still complicated today because uh, there's so many people like you know, a, a white person loses a job and it's so easy to say, oh, well, you know, it was a diver- diversity hire or something. But like even bringing people of color to the table hasn't typically been a thing that um, has been has been a, a focus before. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I, I guess a lot of it goes back to even in classical music. And I think about this a lot, uh, Josh, not just in terms of systemic racism, mm-hmm. but but kind of. um like the status quo inevitably um, holds back minority communities, you know, like in terms of programming, um, in terms of hiring, like, so, so there has to be some focus about doing things differently to see changes happening. Um, and there's a lot of schools of thought about how to do that. And so, some people even think like, well, if we did that, would we be sort of um, diminishing, uh, the level of our institution or something, you know, but I think it's 2021 and like, there's plenty of minority, uh, musicians who are just as capable, um, to, to meet the demands and the level that an institution sets for itself, you know? Um, what? so anyway, like I've been thinking a lot about status quo, yeah. um, as well. Um, well, can I and ask- that's it. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you. I mean, the the things that you brought up here. Uh, sorry, in the status, status quo. I just sort of sorry. I'm not ignoring you, Ivan. I'm, I'm making no, no. I know. I appreciate it, it, Josh. That's um, awesome. Because I have a horrible short term memory, and I'll be like, so how about the Cleveland Browns? You know, like I'll totally forget <laughs> what we're talking about. Um, pub, you know, public schooling, mass incarceration, and the status quo. And I I feel like, you know, if I'm I'm all just my instinct is always like I you know Mister it's like the Mister Rogers like be a helper you know like. I don't understand a lot of things, but like to me, when I, when somebody says, you know, schooling, I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally crazy. I lived in Scarsdale for eight years, Scarsdale, New York. It's like one of the wealthiest school districts in the world. You can drive 10 miles South and be in, be in the Bronx. And Hmm. you have, you know, one school looks like Hogwarts in Scarsdale and the other one looks like you could be in Iraq, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not exaggerating here. Like that's not a, it's true. Like it just like the feeling of it is like total chaos in one place. And granted, this is anecdotal. I'm talking about two places I've been, you know, like mm-hmm. in that in Scarsdale, you have a ton of people, you know, who are very wealthy, work in the financial district, live there. And so their tax dollars, property taxes, everything goes to that school district. If the same thing is happening to lower income families in these other areas, the argument about like charter schools comes into play. Like how, and I have a good friend of mine, uh, Lou Huerta does a lot. He works at Teachers College at Columbia and he does a lot of writing around public policy and education. And he's been 
and again, I'm not an expert in this, just when he talks about charter schools versus public school education um, and these shared spaces that we have. To me, when I think of public schooling, I think that's where, like, I'm curious where you land on this stuff. What is your, what are your thoughts on charter schools? How do we restructure? I want to fix this stuff, but I don't know how to. And like, <laughs> like I, I, I think it's one thing to say, like, this sucks, and it does. But, like, that education is, I think, for me and maybe for you, where both of us have the most, like, our hands are pushing against the actual box that needs to be moved somewhere in education, like, more so for me than mass, in- mass incarceration or the drug war. Like, that to me is a harder thing for me to tap into to try to affect, short of the way I talk about it. Yeah, I think marijuana should be legal. I think we shouldn't be incarcerating people for joints, you know, like, but I have less of a say in that. I feel like whether or not that's true is another story. But I'm curious for public schooling. Where does your head fall? Like, did you go through public school? Yeah, I did. Um, in uh, Victoria, Texas, mm-hmm. small town, Texas, where I'm from. And it was crazy. Like, I remember having um, going to like a marching band competition, you know, mm-hmm. and my school taking our little props with us and doing what we did. Mm-hmm. And then we're going up against these unbelievable Central Texas, Austin, Dallas schools, like the Death Star of marching band. Oh know? my gosh! And 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 like they had like machinery, <laughs> they had the like field, fully functioning you know? cars and everything else on stage, you know. And, and like, like even aside from the the issue, like even as a person of color who grew up in a poor community, like like my we grew up, I grew up in a in a trailer park for a while, you know. Um, and like, it's just, it's, it's shocking to see that kind of thing. Hmm. You know, it's shocking to see like, wow, like there, there's another side of the spectrum that I didn't realize exists, existed hmm. that does exist, you know? Um, but, you know, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of this stuff from, for me personally um, gets alleviated at least a little bit if, if wealth can be distributed in a more equal way, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, and I think we're slowly sort of getting there as a, as a country. Um, but like, I really do think that, you know, money plays a part in all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if people can, can get a hold of more funding for stuff, including their personal stuff, then I feel like at least the system starts to, starts to rebalance a little mm-hmm. bit, you know? Um, and that's like a, a political thing, but mm-hmm. I think it plays right into this thing too, you know? Well, for the, to me, like I, I, the older I get, the, the more I feel like my beliefs and where the money can actually come from are starting to shift a little bit. Like I'm starting, you know, there's trillions of dollars, billions, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that go to the Pentagon for a Mm -hmm. fighter jet. There was just, I read an article the other day about a trillion dollar fighter jet that doesn't work. You know, like I wondering the older I get, whether or not it's going to be easier politically to pry loose a hundred billion dollars from the Pentagon than it is to pry loose even an extra thousand dollars from every individual on a taxpayer basis. Like there's something weird that happens when people have their own personal money. Like, I mean, when we talk about the public schooling, my, my, my high school in Dover, Ohio, very small rural, rural high school cannot pass a levy to save its life. 
And when it does, it does a thing, and then those those kids <laughs> graduate, and then the next generation of people who don't have kids in school are like, hands out of my pocket. It's like, well, wait a minute. Like, you do understand that my money paid for your kids to go to school. <laughs> and yeah. And so, like, it's just interesting to me that everybody's everybody seems to be okay with being like, well, let's just, we have this huge pile of money here, but as soon as somebody has to give up a hundred bucks. I know. The uh, argument gets, and I, and I'm wondering whether or not that's true across, I mean, it feels like that's true across the socioeconomic spectrum, whether you're talking to somebody who makes a thousand dollars a year or talking to somebody who makes a million dollars a year, getting them to give that extra hundred bucks is like, well, wait a minute, you know, and I'm wondering why that is. Yeah. I think there's some truth to that. Although I do like, for example, myself, and uh my wife like um you know from where i grew up and that amount of income to to the life that we live now is is way different mm-hmm. um and you know we're more than happy to to give extra if that if that makes things fair mm-hmm. and i think there are people like that you know um but i think um you're right like there is a part of the population that no matter how much money that they make, they feel like they're not entitled to share that <laughs> with anyone. Well, it's like, um, it's the weird American dream thing, right? Like, and, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not endorsing that just to be clear. I'm just trying to like, think it's this, it's the friction I run up against when I talk to, you know, family of mine who don't maybe they haven't spent the time I've spent with minority communities and, and they don't understand that, like, it's still a mystery that my friends get pulled over more than me. Like, there's a weird, like, I can't get them to believe me. And I don't understand why I can't get them to believe. There's just, because they've never experienced it themselves, people are more inclined. It's just more stressful to engage with that. You know? I know. And, and you know, Josh, this goes back to uh, systemic and structural racism within education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... Like you mentioned last time on the podcast, uh, you know, like your friends um, who who are from your um, sort of Midwestern part of the, the country, you know, they, they view racism maybe differently, that term mm-hmm. in terms of somebody else, you know, and I get what you mean. And I think I understand what they would say, too. You know, it's like there's very overt, obvious racism, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody in a clan hat chasing black people around or whatever it is you know like which but sadly still also, exists unfortunately what's which, that which sadly still exists unfortunately absolutely know. yeah but then i think there's there's also obviously racism that is layered and that goes to our points and what we're talking about and for some reason our education system um doesn't talk about those things we don't address systemic racism so that people can view it from um, even a non-personal place, but just like something that historically has happened. Um, And that's really important. Until we get to that point, I think you're going to keep getting people who, like you mentioned, who you're just going to run up uh, against these thoughts. Like, well, that's never happened to me. Um, And I feel like at least if we had um, a perspective, an educational perspective on these issues, it might enlighten them as to how real these issues are now there's a lot at play there like how do we get to that point where we can openly talk you know like even the trump administration like they were axing uh you know what's the project the the, um there's the the 16 um 1619 project yeah they were like already 
sort of in conflict with teaching that in schools. Um, and, and like, so that, I think that's a long ways away, but like that ultimately is just one other example of how it's going to be hard for us to, to advance in these things if we're not all seeing it the same way, yeah, which I, is like, which is a fact-based statistical way to see it. Um, it's I mean, just, people don't want to go there because it's harmful to the psyche of, uh, you know, white folks, obviously in the systems that, that they live in. Yeah. I mean, I, I was in grad school lamenting to my friends that John Cage only got one page out of the music history book, you know, and then I go back and I look at other history books and I see that slavery only got four pages, you know, <laughs> and Dude, I'm like, we're yeah. talking about 400 years of, of history. And I went to the, I, I feel like every living, breathing American, no matter what age you are. And I say American specifically because this should go, should be required. This, there should be government funding to give everybody a free ticket to the Smithsonian, the African History Museum in, in DC. The one that like, you go down into the basement, you take an elevator down you see the like, have you been there before? Have you checked it out? Uh, oh no, my God, I've never been. Ivan, it is like one of the most horrifying and beautiful experiences I think I've ever had. Like <laughs> you get in this elevator and it's just set up so perfectly and you get in, you go down and you see the, the time ticking back like 1812, 1793 and you get down to 1619 and you get off the elevator and you just, you go by Emmett Till's grave, you go by, or a uh, casket, um, you see the video of his mom talking and forgiving the people who killed him, but demanding right. that his casket be open so everybody see what they did to her boy. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and it's one thing to read about, this is the, this is my thing with like the reading of a book and then you've, you've now, it's like, uh, there's one thing to read about that story and then there's another thing to see the actual casket, to see the stains on the sheets to hear his mother and you keep walking and then you get up and you, you walk up to all of these floors. By the time you get to the fifth floor, you're at like Bootsy Collins and Aretha Franklin. And you see, it is just such a comprehensive, you can't possibly mm. go through there and walk out and be like, well, it wasn't so bad. Slavery wasn't so <laughs> like, there's no way. I don't care who you are. Right. Um, but that's, it, that's, that's, I think that's exactly, um, that's exactly right, Josh. It's like having those educational experiences to teach us about these things um, and that's hard for, uh, for people to accept, like it's part of our history, you know, and like, it shouldn't be celebrated obviously, but it should be studied, you know, and, and like, even like, you know, everybody's on a different spectrum with Joe Biden, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's moderates who love him. There's progressives who are like, oh, he's doing okay. And like, there's other, and then there's people who are like i don't like him he's not all. setting my like yeah he's not setting my hair on fire every day so he must be okay <laughs> like there, <laughs> right. there's that extreme too sure but even him he's used language in the past like oh this isn't who we are this isn't you know and like in terms of addressing these systemic ra racism issues you know but like in a way like this has been who we've been and and maybe it's okay to talk about it in that way mm -hmm. you know i think it's totally appropriate to say that's that's who we were and we don't know where we're going or we, we have a hope to where we're headed. Where we are is not a fixed point in space and it's certainly not done. Like we mm -hmm. are not done. Like this idea, just because slavery ended, everybody's like, what, you know, like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean? What? Like, do, do you understand the impacts of the civil war? Do you understand why things in the South, why systems and just like, forget about like what slavery did specifically to a population of people. Zoom out even further and look at why things function the way they do in the South. Because systems were set up 
that had to be dismantled by the North. And every and it's that's only like one and a half people ago that that even happened. And so like you can't you have to look at the what what food has developed in a particular area of the country. Why is what why is barbecue what it is? Like all of this stuff is connected. This is not these aren't you can't you pull one thread and the whole thing keeps unwinding because it's all tied together. Yeah, that that's exactly right, Josh. You're totally right. I mean, even for me, like my grandfather in Texas was denied service, mm. you know, to, to go okay. e- go eat somewhere, et cetera. Like, and, and my name, Trevino, it should have an Enye, but like generations ago, uh, my family took it off so they, that they could assimilate. So people might think that they're Italian and not Mexicano, is, right? Is that common? Is it common in the Hispanic community? And 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 am I say is when I say Hispanic community, is that the proper brush to be painting with, or should I? Is there <laughs> like or is it Latino? I, like I, I, I want to be careful here. I think I think Hispanic is like Spanish speaking. Okay, so that's a lot of people. That's like yes, another continent. I think you know. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. Uh, for for the sake of this conversation, you could probably just say. Um, like Mexican or Tex-Mex, okay. and I would know what you mean. Um, but I don't know if that's actually common or not. I'm not sure, but um, I've seen um, like documents from my family that had it before, and I mm. remember talking to my dad about it, and he said, yeah, like once where our family lived became Texas and not Mexico, there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of violence and a lot of, um, just general racism against the the people that were there before. Well, can I ask you one of the things that uh, as you were talking, like I want to, I have had a bit of a the 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 issue I see sometimes in our field um, is this. There's a lot of effort being made to make the white spaces more diverse. There's, but there's no effort. I don't want to say there's no effort. There's the it, the initial instinct isn't for the white spaces to learn more about black spaces by or or BIPOC spaces by going into them, and in the in, in the instant in spending really investing and spending time, you know, maybe that means going to play in a steel band. Maybe that means going to join, a, you know, Brazilian batucada ensemble. Um, and maybe you're not going to mine it for all of its like cultural value that you can go back and, but you're just going to participate. And I'm curious for you, like what, what are you noticing on your side of things? Do you feel like there's a, I feel like there's a big sucking sound on the white side of things being like, come over here. So our spaces can be more diverse but there's not a whole lot of effort to be like, I think if I was living next to you, I would be like, Ivan, can you just take me to a place where no one speaks English and everybody plays awesome guitars and accordions and no one's going to pay attention to me. They'll smile to me and they'll be totally lovely. But that's what I would want to go be a part of. And I'm curious if my instinct is like, what am I missing with that viewpoint? What am I missing? Well, uh, I, I don't know, but I, I do think that um, classical music has sort of this saviorism personality, right? Like, um, we're going to go into the inner city schools and we're going to play Bach and Beethoven. And this is like the, this is the supreme kind of music. And we're going to really show these kids, you know, what it sounds like and what it is to hear this, you know, sort of glorified music. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's not it, <laughs> you know, like, well, it's, it's think... awesome. But you could also be like, you know, why box awesome? Because he was a lot like Miles Davis, <laughs> you know, like, sure. like there's ways yeah. to do that where you can put the emphasis on Miles Davis rather than on, on Bach. Not that Bach is bad. It's just. Yeah, you know, no, absolutely. But I think if you're only coming at it from that sort of pure, purest mm-hmm. classical music mindset, um, that's not like an, a healthy approach to outreach, you know, mm. Um I think that the the problems, Josh, with this whole thing, and I think what you bring up is totally valid, but it speaks to, again, uh, the education of classical music. Mm. Like, we study what we study, and that has become like church, you know? Right, right. Um, and, and, and like, I feel like in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, like hip hop and rap, for example, have become like, one of the most important American genres of music. Um, and like, if you try to theorize it from a classical perspective, you're going to, you know, you'll get people who say like, oh, well, it's not music. There's there's hardly any chord changes, et cetera, et cetera. Miles Davis, again, I'll just go ahead and bring up kind of blue. Go ahead. <laughs> right. if, if, if many chord changes are what is, is your sort of litmus test. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm going to call Bob. That's, I got one lick to get to the center of your Tootsie Pop, if that's your argument. <laughs> that's, well, yeah, you're right. Um, but I feel like the way that the system is structured to just focus on this sort of Western classical music um, affects how outreach is done, and it affects how diversity is done, you know, Um And I think there's this big debate in the classical community and I've had it with, you know, different uh, professors and teachers, like who you are as an institution versus um, what you want your experience, your school experience to be like, who you want to be there, who you want to have at the table. Um, And for me, I think part of that does involve a, a, examining our curriculum Mm. and and altering it and adding to it and changing it so that we incorporate more music that in in its very nature incorporates more people of color you know Mm -hmm. um and maybe that's sort of a an aside from your original sort of question but um that's sort of what i always think about when it comes to diversity and um bringing people to the table because that that would, like to your point, would almost necessitate a, a white student to have an experience mm-hmm. in in a non-white sort of music form. Um, and I don't know what that curriculum would look like. Like it, like it, you could get so broad with it. Like obviously, like there's another half of the world that entirely almost gets overlooked in our community too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like where does that fit into the equation and like representation for that you know those genres of music too like i just think there's a way to to restructure the whole thing mm. um obviously like here's another thing i've been thinking about and i'm not sure this is a white problem but this is a status quo problem like classical music has it, like it's always been this way but i think it's really becoming this way it's like it's a charity in some respects, you know, like it's not a self-sustaining system anymore. Um, what do you mean by I that? Feel, Can you drill well, back? I just, I just mean like, I, I feel like, you know, and this has been discussed for decades, but like, and obviously pandemic, like this is, 
we can't judge this by the pandemic, but you know, audience attendance at orchestra concerts, orchestras folding, like all the whole thing has sort of been trending downward um, in terms of how viable these systems are and how they operate, you know? Um, and that's a tough conversation to have and I'm not sure how to fix that, but um, whatever we've been doing has not been working. Um, and that and that includes the curriculum because the curriculum in itself feeds those those systems, you know. Mm. So perhaps reevaluating the curriculum would then hopefully create an an ecosystem that might be more viable. Um, and I don't just mean monetarily; like I just mean like um, culturally more viable to more people, you know, and not just have a, a specific demographic of an audience that will go to your concert, you know, 55 and older, typically white, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, th- these are all like super yeah. broad issues. No, but- I, well, I mean, that's, these are important. And to me, I, I agree with you a hundred percent on everything you're saying about the sort of the way the college curriculum is structured. And I, I've been hearing when I was a student in 1999, I heard everybody whispering about orchestras folding and, and it's the death of orchestras. And now it's like 22 years later, there's been a few orchestras that have folded a lot of orchestras, Philly orchestra had financial problems a couple of years ago. Um, obviously the, the thing is, it's like, it's just a big ensemble. Like it just takes a lot of money. It's not a, it's a very vulnerable ensemble when a crisis hits, it's too big to fail. It's they're like the bank of America of like the investment bank of the music world is the orchestra. And my problem has been, I think the, I, I want to, I don't want to take issue with what you said, but you said something about like the, uh, the, or- the system has failed us. And actually I think the system has done exactly what it set out to do, which was create a shitload of orchestra percussionists. And I'm only, I'm t- only talking about percussion education right now, but I think you could, there was an article in the times about Juilliard grads that are like 11% of them or something are getting work outside of school. And like, when you're charging that much money, what are you doing? Like, what, what is your, what is your job there as an institution? Um, we've trained a ton of orchestra positions and that's why when there's an orchestra audition at, you know, Chicago symphony, 900 people apply and they only let in 20 and those people, they didn't even have to audition. You know, there's like a, there is, there's a, it, the system now is too big to get an orchestra job. And I'm curious how much of that, like I was discouraged from going to the orchestra world because and I'm a white guy like because I saw it and I was just like fuck no are you kidding me that is the most discouraging path I could ever imagine going down do I love playing an orchestra yeah Mahler 2 is awesome I love it big fan but I knew I was not willing to jump through those hoops teaching at a college is the same thing the 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 system that we have to get people doctoralized or whatever it is to to knighted to be able to teach at a university with tenure with health insurance i was like nope i don't have the money and i come from you know middle class family but it's like no hell no and like if i'm having that reaction then of course shitloads of other people are having that reaction for various reasons you know i get i got to make a choice other people don't even get to look at that situation and be like i wonder what i'll do (laughs) you know Right. And I think that's what you're addressing here. But but I, but to me, it's like I'm, I'm agreeing with you. The system excludes a lot of people, but it's a system built to sort of funnel people to the orchestra. Whereas if we built things to funnel people, funnel, and I don't even know, 
Like, what is it? Sorry, I'm not forming a question no, here. Just, I, you, you've really I, prodded I, a lot of thinking for me. Go ahead. This, uh, this got me thinking. Like, I feel like perhaps a system that just um, enabled creativity and that sent creatives out into the world mm-hmm. and not necessarily like place them in jobs. Like even in pop music, there's not, there's no jobs per se, just like, I mean, there are, there are, but like, they're not like readily available you for can't all turn of to, us to have. Turn to the classifieds you know? and look for like Taylor Swift jobs. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they like, don't exist. No, exactly. But if you enable creatives and send creatives out into the world, then uh, maybe they will do creative things that will then self-sustain themselves, you know? And, and honestly, perhaps create a much larger impact in communities than, than maybe a typical orchestra might, who, again, typically only sees one kind of demographic of audience member, you know? Um, well, how do we... My, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say my internet connection is unstable, and I don't know why, but... I'm just letting you know that. Okay. It's it's fine on my end. So I, I, I mean, I don't notice anything from you on, on the internet side, but perfect. Um, I'm curious, like, what do we, what do we do? I mean, this is the, what do you do when a parent comes to, okay, so let's, let's make our school. Ivan and Josh, you get to go first while well, your name you can go first. <laughs> <laughs> Ivan and Josh's creative institution. Like I've had enough comfort. I'm sure you have too. Like, how do you convince somebody to pay you without any promise of a result on the other end, other than creativity, create creative prowess, which, yeah. which I agree with you on, but you know, you're giving someone a product and mm-hmm. how do we sell that? That's well, I mean, we sell it already in classical institutions. Like it's not like there's any jobs available really. Except, I guess like except I guess we uh, tell people there uh, are. Sure. Maybe we but should I, stop I think saying I think they're that. I think they're learning now, you know, through everything that's coming out. Like mm-hmm. you said, just the Times article. It's like none of that is true anymore. Um I guess you could go to a school where their statistics are better, you know. Um I mean but, I- but I don't know. I, I, I just, I think it's the same as, um, you know, going to school for um, photography or mm. going to school for acting, for example, like, mm. sure, you could find a, a job with a sort of acting group, et cetera, but um, it doesn't necessarily come with the territory. Um, but I, I think that knowing what you're getting into, like, you have to be okay with that. Like, I think that's fine. And like, maybe that's a privileged thing for me to say, um, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, I do think that there's creatives out there and there's these, there's very wealthy musicians who might be willing to fund projects or schools like this versus put their money in an institution that has been doing the same thing for 200 years, you know? Mm. No, I, I totally agree. And, um, I, I wonder, like, I mean, I, as you were saying, as you were talking, like the number of times I was told in my undergrad and and I don't mean this as like a value judgment on my teachers I think it was just part of like every I remember my teachers being terrified that I'd never work and like sensing palpable guilt in the way they put they spoke to me like fear that they had an obligation to me to get me a job and I remember thinking like I appreciate that but I don't know why you think that I require that of you but whatever you know and I I went on about my day. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point Josh. Um 
you know, I, I sort of feel like we, we have set up a system where we view having a day job or doing normal people things mm-hmm. outside of music is like bad. Like, oh, you went to school for this and now you're, you're, you have a normal job. Like, why did you do that? But like, it doesn't have to be that way. I think you can be very happy going to school and studying music and then coming out and working a day job and doing music when, when you can. And then if it turns into something that's wonderful, like that each person has to take their own sort of their level of comfort with, with that, you know, um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure. I don't know this is the debate about going to college for a job or going to college for the experience. And I kind of feel like there's a middle ground in there too, but, um, I think we have to be okay with that too, as teachers, like ultimately somebody's, you know, pursuit of their journey and finding happiness is, is up to them. You know, I've always tried to just look at my students and be like, what, I mean, cause, and again, as a reaction to some of the way I was taught, you know, and Bob, Bob at Yale was one of the, one of the people who I sensed that palpable fear in most. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, some of it, some of it, I don't want to be just, some of it may have been, you know, his own desire to, you know, it's recruiting. I mean, Todd, I'm sure Todd thinks about this. It's like the number, if Todd never put out a student who ever had any work in the music field over, you know, 15 years or whatever teaching at Baylor, like eventually people are going to be like, <laughs> well, what, what you, you know, what's here? interesting you know? about the, the Texas scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, in many ways, the public education music scene in Texas sort of uh, is cyclical. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like a lot of his students might end up teaching in public school and there's such a demand for public school education. Um, So in that sense, like at least Todd students will probably, you know, find something within music because of the public education in Texas. But like, that's a good question. I would be curious to ask Todd that what his thoughts would be, you know, but that, that, that perception has even changed. I mean, I think it's more, I think it's more acceptable now for a student to go into music education and that be seen as a valid career path in the percussion studio world. You know, when I was in school, there were the performance majors and then there were what's called the atrium dwellers, which were all the music ed majors who hung out in the atrium of the music school, you know, just chatting, never practicing. And it was like, oh, if you're an, ed- are you an atrium dweller or are you a performer? And I was like, I don't know. I love teaching sixth grade band. They're kind of like my favorite. Isn't that, <laughs> wouldn't that be kind of what you want me to do doing a thing that's what I really enjoy? And now I think 20 years later, I think that perception may be a little bit deflated and it may be more acceptable, but. I think you're totally right. You know, and I, I have even switched my mindset in terms like people often and still ask me like, what is it, you know, what does it mean to make it? Or like, what does that mean? You know, and like in my past, I remember saying stuff like if you can do anything in music, whether it's teaching or writing or playing like that's making it. And, you know, and, and like, and I still agree with certain parts of that, but like, you know, at the end of the day, like if you go through college and you end up finding another career path and finding joy in that, like that's, you know, that's making it too. Maybe it's not making it in music per se, but it's certainly like, you know, finding your, finding yourself and your purpose and whatever you end up doing, you know? I, I think in my reaction against the, I think I, I reacted against like Bob and some of my teachers in the like job thing of like, I saw the fear and the anxiety it gave them. So I know, and then two things is like, well, I don't want that. 
I don't want to have that that sort of monkey on my shoulder every time I come into a lesson with a student. And B, I can't. I have zero power. I'm an adjunct and I play in a percussion quartet. Like mm-hmm. I don't like maybe maybe my power. I'm not aware of my power, but like <laughs> I don't actually. I still am trying to get gigs. Like so, I'm not. I'm going to be disingenuous here. I'm teaching you how to play in a steel band or chamber music or whatever. I have zero interest in you becoming a professional steel drummer because, quite frankly. I can barely figure that out. What I have an interest in is you being a representative of me in the future. Meaning, if you go into accounting or you go into open an animal shelter, if I find out that you're being an asshole at those places and you're hard to work with and you don't care what other people are doing around you, you know what that is? That's being a bad chamber musician. And I can t- I've taught you how to do that. And so Mm -hmm. you're just actively ignoring all the things I taught you, and I will (laughs) never write you a letter of recommendation. If you want me to write a letter of recommendation to your animal shelter, that's easy. Mm -hmm. Like, I can do that, and that's what I'm here for. I can't promise you that you're going to run a steel band someday or you're going to run a percussion studio because I just can't. Like, that's... Yeah, I know, and that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself as an educator, too. I feel like some educators do that. Mm Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, and, and, and God bless them for trying to go to bat and find a job for every single student that they have, you know, that's nice. Um, but that's, that's can be heavy, you know, well, that can be heavy. And it's, you know, and it's part of, this is the, I mean, I've had some things happen this week in terms of the, edu- like, where am I, what, what is my responsibility as an educator? Where do my ethics lie? How do my ethics and my educating overlap? And where do I... Where do I know when, what hill am I going to die on as an educator, you know? And this week, there were a couple hills that that popped up for me. And I, I actually don't feel super comfortable because it's a little private for my colleague, but like talking about him here, but where it popped up and I was like, oh, hmm. I'm actually willing to throw it all away because of something that is stupid and like is a dumb little thing. What What do I do here? I don't, oh no. Like, like, and, and I, as an educator, I like, what's my responsibility? How do I teach a student about, about racism? How do I teach them about comments that are made that they have no idea how much of an effect it had on somebody, but because of that particular comment to a particular person, it sends them into a spiral, you know, like what's my, what are what's my, your role? What's your role in that? What's right. my role in that? And I found myself getting very defensive of my friend who I've known for 12 years and being coming very angry and kind of shutting down and then kind of moving on and, and genuinely feeling like I need to, I need to stand up for my colleague, my friend who I love and is a family member of mine. On the other hand, I got to be careful not to burn something down that because of something that somebody had no clue what they were saying. You know, and I don't think I have the answer yet. Like, I think it may be a conversation I need to have with them in the fall. Like, I don't know. Like, it just Mm -hmm. like I made the call not to have that conversation now. And I don't know whether I made the right call, you know, but I think that I think, um, yeah, I I don't know. But I, I know how you feel. I've been even recently in similar sort of situations where, like, ultimately, the thing that has given me peace is just getting space having space from it, you know, um, like even recently, like I sort of invested myself in my brain power 
into a particular thing that like, I don't know why I did. I think it's because I was close to the people, like you said, you know, it's like, it becomes family. Um, but it can get heavy the more you invest in something as complicated as some of those issues, you know, and like maybe space is just the best, you know? Yeah. But man, space is hard. I mean, it's, it was a moment where I, I genuinely felt like I didn't do the right thing that I, you know, I needed to apologize to my colleague, but I also, but anyway, it, as an educator, I think, well, first of all, I appreciate you letting me be vulnerable about this stuff and, and just having yeah. this, this, these conversations. Um, I, cause for me, I think education, we talked about this a bit last time. Education is kind of where it's easy to staple leaves to the tree and be like, look, the tree's different now. You got to replant the tree, bro. Like, like mm. the tree, we planted this tree hundreds of years ago and things grew the way they did because of the specific water that was getting poured on the roots. Well, mm-hmm. we've realized now that there's hundreds of other types of water that need to be watering that root so that it looks more organic. And so what did you do? Do you tear the whole tree out? That's a painful process. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to get alienated, are going to be upset. A lot of people are going to be happy. I think it's not an unhealthy thing to think about, but it's like that. I felt like I wanted to pull the tree out by the root <laughs> the other day and just be like, I'm going to set it on fire in the backyard and start over in five years. But that I, I actually felt like that would have done more harm than good in that moment. Sure. You know, but I know it, it's hard. Um, it, it, it is hard, Josh. I, I still, you know, from our last convo, we talked a lot about um, sort of reforming things mm-hmm, versus, mm-hmm. you know, abolishing them and starting fresh. Right. And that is, that is tricky and it becomes trickier when you're involved, you know? Um, but like, and I guess this goes back to the beginning of our conversation today. It's like last time we talked a lot about our feelings, Mm -hmm. you know, but sometimes our feelings can sort of askew just the matter of fact things that are happening, you know? Um, and, and like, yeah, I, I, I totally know how you feel though, man. Um, it's not easy. Well, I mean, you're, this is the thing my therapist is on me all the time about. It's like your feelings aren't proof of anything. Like just because you have that anxiety, that's not proof that it's your anxiety is founded in anything. Like you, you're mm-hmm. reacting to something. And so like take a step back and look at whether or not you're reacting appropriately. And I think a couple of days ago I, I found that I was not. I was mm-hmm. – I jumped to anger and defensiveness and that's not – doesn't do anybody any good. But it's – you know, I – well, what do you, I don't know if we solved anything today, buddy. Like, no, I, I, I don't think I, we, I don't, that wasn't, I wasn't hoping to, like part of what I want, part of, again, why I wanted to talk and, you know, Josh, maybe, uh, you know, we think about how these episodes run together. Like maybe we run this first or I don't know, you know, um, yeah, I'm loose. but, but I think part of me again, wanted to make sure that we at least spent time on focusing the the convo on some of those systemic and structural issues. Cause I feel like, I don't know, I, I left also feeling like just like not, not disappointed in myself, but maybe a little bit like, like, man, we should have talked about that more. And that wasn't on you. It was on me too. Like you're, this is an open conversation. And I felt like I wanted to talk about my feelings a lot, um, well, but I, mean- I didn't necessarily get to talk about the important stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, my, 
I I appreciate you saying all that out loud, and this is exactly why I started this podcast, is because I value heavily conversations that are 50-50. Like, yes, this is my podcast. Yes, I started it. Of course, you could feel like, well, whatever, you know. No, like, I, I don't like having conversations that are one-sided. I don't like having conversations that are me just rattling off shit, I think. I'd like you to be <laughs> like, well, I don't know about this thing. I wonder if we could re-look at this from a side angle. Like... That's important to me. And, you know, I don't think either one of us owes anybody else an apology except for each of us. Like, Ivan, I will take 50% responsibility for us not covering things last time <laughs> as long as you take and, the other 50%. And, and then, and I, you know. I think you're I think you're right, too, Josh. Like, there's only so much to cover in a little amount of time, you know. Uh, and there's totally a lot of truth to that. Um, but, you know, I, I do think, and this is a good, maybe something, somebody needs to hear this out, out there. Um, but to go back to your point about our feelings, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, last time I talked a lot about my feelings about these things. Um, and like, I think that just sort of, by the time I got done, I realized like, oh my gosh, like, how did I not address these sorts of issues that, that people who are harmed by them deserve to have addressed, you know, like that's, the, that's the issue here. Um, and, and I just appreciate you given given me a little more space to do that and to to do it with me too well the space is always there i mean i if you want to have parts three four five six and we end up doing <laughs> you know part 172 three years from now like i don't care like i i to me the other thing i think i want to be i want folks to understand if someone listened to our part one and if anybody listened to anything i said and they're like well that's his fixed position it's never been different and it never will be different you're wrong you're just wrong you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Your perceptions of my my the, my conversational style are, are not proof that that's who I am. I changed, my, my views on stuff are different because I talk to you. They're different because I talk to Todd. They're different because I talk to Kendall. I want to say things out loud to see the look on your face, to know like, oops, <laughs> that's, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me jerk the wheel a little bit back on the road. I'm on the berm now. And that was because mm. you and I had a back and forth. And your feelings are important. Again, they're not proof of anything, myself included, but like, I don't know who you are unless you tell me how you feel. And then we can start to like graft on, we can put the societal weight on both of our shoulders once we both know how, where we both stand. And so I, I feel like the progression of this conversation, I would lobby is the way people should have conversations, which is like, get to know somebody. And then when that person says, can we talk about this other thing deeper? Say yes. And be nervous about it. Like, I was nervous all week, Ivan. I thought I said something incredibly <laughs> racist or, like, you know. No, and I was no, like, no. oh, my God, is is he going to come to the table? Like, you know, listen, I don't know you that well. I I, <laughs> I, I, I rely heavily on on loyalty and my friends sort of vouching for people. And so when, I, when somebody says Ivan's a good guy, I'm like, okay, you know. And so I trust you implicitly. So I, I don't know why I was having any sort of, like, you know, weird moments. But... I think this is important, and I'm grateful to you for being willing to do it. I know that a lot of people don't want to have these conversations because they can. You can get to spots where n neither person knows what to say next, and then some. Then usually, me says the awkward thing, and <laughs> you know, and so anyway, I think this is a good demonstration for folks on just how to have a conversation. They don't have to have it the same way. They don't have to come to the same conclusions. They can have it completely differently, but at least use this as a like. If you if you're modeling your marimba playing after someone you saw play marimba, 
then model your conversational style after Ivan Trevino and Josh Quillen, who are two lovely people <laughs> who just like to talk to each other. You don't have to do it exactly like us, but there, I'm, we're showing you a few ways in how to do it. And so that's what I think is important. That's awesome. Thank you, Josh, so much, man. I appreciate it. Well, is, before we let you go, is there any, have you, I mean, I know it's only been like a week and a half, but is there any updates on your music or anything else that we should know that you've been sort of chewing away at well, over there? Well, you know, I took some time off from music um, after I finished that book of 4.3 duos for Marimbas, the ones that we talked about last time that you heard um, Emily from University of Kentucky playing with uh, Jamie. Um, Emily Salgado? No, she's in Michigan. Sorry. Um, sorry. There's a lot of Emily's that I... Yeah. Uh, oh, shoot. I'm, I'm uh, totally blanking. Um, Which I think I told you the last podcast that I liked it better with two two different people than just with you. Yeah, you were like, I, you suck, Ivan. The, <laughs> well, the two that, are good. <laughs> maybe that's the thing I was worried you were going to hold me to the no, face. Man, I, I did not think Ivan, about it that it sounds once. much better when two different people play. No, no, no. Um, um, but so I took some time off. But just recently I started uh, up again. And I'm, I got a couple of things going. But one is working on a project with my friend, Colleen uh, Bernstein. Do you mm-hmm. know Colleen? I know Colleen. I've, we've met once, I think, but I don't I don't know her super well. She's, but I she's awesome, man. She's a good friend of mine. And we're working on an arrangement of um, this tune by um, a singer songwriter from Mexico. Her name is Natalia Laforcade. She's like super famous in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And she's done a lot of a lot of uh, different kinds of music. She's done like culturally sort of like focus music she's done pop rock she's she's amazing so we're going to arrange one of her tunes for like singing and a bunch of percussion instruments mm-hmm. um and then the other thing that I, I have to start working on is i'm writing a piece for the eastman win ensemble Whoa. for um they're having a, a big centennial celebration this concert season um and then they asked me to write a piece and i'm going to write a piece for me and my former teacher michael burrett sort of like a come at like, like a double short double concerto for us to play together with the, the ensemble. Well, you know, writing for the Eastman wind ensemble. I mean, that's like if you were going to write for every tabernacle choir and you got to choose the Morbin tabernacle choir, like, <laughs> like, like you've got the Eastman wind ensembles, like they're some of the OGs, right? Like that, that's a big, yeah, it's, it's really cool, man. I, I feel very honored, uh, to, to be doing it obviously. And I've, I played in the ensemble when I was in school too. And, I, I sort of know the history of it. Um, and and I think it's cool that they asked me to, to, they know how I write and they know the kind of music that I play. And I'm sure it will be different than typical win ensemble music, but I think that's um, that's why they asked me to do it, you know? And to get uh, Michael to play it with mm-hmm. me, like he's a very special person to me and, and has been a mentor and now we're, we're good friends. And, have you, you know, we have, we have a lot of conversations like you and I have yeah. about all sorts of stuff. You know, he's that kind of guy too. Um, but anyway, to, to write something and to play it with him is going to be awesome. Bert is one of those people we in the, I'm getting old enough now where I feel like I can say this because he's, he's a colleague and I've had enough whiskey with him where I, I feel okay to share this, but like in grad school, just because you know, teachers are competitive. I remember Burke came to give a master class and he played for us in a master class. And I was just like, oh, oh, come on, Michael. Like, I was so judgmental. And I like, I didn't know him. I was studying at, at Yale with Bob and I'm over here like, blah, 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 you know, and Burke came in and, and did uh, played something. I remember he coached us on um, uh, Village Burial with Fire. And I just remember, 
I remember being just it just being a dumb like I was 22 years old. I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And then meeting him <laughs> later and, and getting to know him and and just love him dearly and see the support he gives to his students and to sew and to all these things. You know, it was oh, I've apologized oh, yeah. to him since. So to- totally, he is he is that kind of teacher. Like for me, definitely some of the tipping points in my career directly involve him. Mm. Eastman him programming my music at Pasig, et cetera. Like yeah. he's he's very special to me. And, um, yeah, man. And, and you're, and you're right. Like, um, I remember I studied with John Beck mm-hmm. and then I took some time off and study with Mike and it was like polar opposites. <laughs> you know, I, I remember going to a lesson, my first lesson with Mike and playing some, I don't remember what I played and like JB would be like, Oh yeah, it sounds good. Try this, you know? And like, Mike was like, all right, we got to do this. We got to do this. And I was like, it doesn't sound good. He's like, no, nope. <laughs> Not yet. It doesn't. And it was like completely, uh, I've, I've talked about this before, but almost different coaching styles like mm-hmm. Phil Jackson, JB, um, you know, hard nose, Mike, Dits- Mike Ditka, not that quiet, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you no, know what I, know I mean? What mean? Like, just like super energetic. Um, and it was cool. It's cool to get both sides of that spectrum, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I've told Bob stories many times. My, my undergrad teacher, Larry Snyder is, is very much just a, like one of my heroes in life. Just always just like, have you checked this out? Have you checked this out? Have you checked this out? Look at this, look at this, look at this. And so like every lesson was basically that I'd play something. He'd be like, yeah, buddy, but have you checked out this? And it was always very encouraging. And I took one timpani right. lesson with Bob my first week at Yale. And he was like, you're never going to play in an orchestra. You know that, right? <laughs> and i was like huh and he's like really you're never going to win an orchestra job with that timpani <laughs> playing and i he, and he's like i just got todd Meehan, and i didn't know who todd was at the time he's like i just got todd Meehan a job i just got javi alonso and he's like i know what it takes and you're never going to win one and he's like so we got to make a call do you want to play bat mitzvahs on steel drums or do you want to take orchestra auditions i was like well i'll play bat mitzvahs on steel drums easily Easy. <laughs> and he was like, okay, then we're done studying timpani, you know, in terms of like the level to get orchestra. Um, but it was like, I, I, I appreciated his sort of blunt honesty. He wasn't wrong. I just didn't understand why he wasn't wrong in that moment. But yeah, um, and Mike was is sim- similar in that respect. He'll, he will definitely be honest with you in, in a good way, you know. Have you started smoking crystal meth in order to keep up with him on the marimba? <laughs> <laughs> no, like I think I think that's the side of JB that I have adopted. Okay, all right. So when when Mike and I play together, I feel like um like like yin and yang, you know, like it's just um it has that kind of vibe which is good. When he says what tempo do you want to do it at? Do you always say like whatever tempo you play, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I always say like 10 clicks slower than you think we should. Um. (laughs) All right. Well, Ivan, I really appreciated this, this uh, part two. And again, like doors always open. Um, I'll I'll be in touch whenever we, I get these edited and and we're ready to launch. So um, in the meantime, stay healthy. And I hope to, I really hope to come to Texas and see you all in person sooner. I would love that dude. Hopefully soon. Okay. All righty. All right. Stay healthy. Good to see you, man. Cheers. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check them out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, Um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, 
uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon.